0: Coming up on the show, we react to Home Assistant password-shaming both of us, and then attempt to solve an age-old cloud problem. Backups. I'm Chris. And I'm Alex, and this is Self-Hosted. The podcast the a middle-aged man now. We're 40. <laughs> yeah, the podcast is feeling like he's still got some pet left in him, but also has a few miles on him. Or her. Midlife crisis coming up. <laughs> is, it a, is the podcast, uh, does it have a gender? It's a thing, right? The podcast prefers to be referred to as they. <laughs> 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 Podcast pronouns.
1: Yeah. <laughs> There's a title right there, I'll tell you what. Anyway, you were gonna tell me about your off-grid
0: solar stuff. We've not heard about that for a while. We were chatting about this just before we hit record because I'm off-grid and podcasting on solar right now. I was just talking to you actually because you're thinking about getting solar, and I think the the thing that people have to wrap their head around is what are you planning for? Are you planning for like a grid blackout or brownout? Are you planning for going out into the woods? What's your scenario? And then how much battery do you really need versus could you supplement with a generator? Like for me right now, I think I've hit a sweet spot of enough battery capacity that I can I can run on it for a day or so. And if it's a sunny day out, I can get char I can get a 30-40% charge right now in the winter but I can't get a 100% charge off of solar right now. And so I need to run the generator for about an hour once a day right now when I'm off grid. And that's fine. I feel like that's actually a really good spot because the more battery you have, the more generator or solar you're going to need. Uh, you can't, you know, you can't charge all, you have to have the ability to charge all that stuff up. So I feel like I've kind of hit the sweet spot that because it's winter, you know, we're not getting prime sunshine and I'm only running the generator about once a day and otherwise we're getting we're getting along. I think I'm kind of in that sweet spot. And I think that's something you should think about when you're specking out your solar system for your house is what are you covering for? Are you covering for a couple of days of no power? Or do you really just need to cover for a couple of hours? And if it goes longer, maybe you could run a generator for an hour or two. I think I want to cover
1: just the, the average daily low-level load of the house. I want to make the house more sustainable. So, you know, like just all the lighting, all the computers that are on in here, Uh, Whatever that works out to be, my uh, electric bill is normally in a sort of hundred to hundred and twenty-ish dollar range, so it's not too crazy. And uh, for me, it's about sustainability. And I I was watching a David Attenborough program, Our Perfect Planet, the other night. Beautiful four K HDR on the LG OLED. Oh, it was magical to watch that thing streaming from the Plex server. Correct. Yeah, through the Nvidia Shield. You you can't help but watch the these perfect planet things and be left with a sense of guilt about what humanity is doing to the planet and how we're consuming too many resources and stuff like that. So, you know, I think about how I might be in a position to do something about that as just an individual, when in reality we need to, as a, a species, collectively actually affect change. But mm-hmm. as an individual, there isn't much I can do, but reducing my use of fossil fuels, even by a little bit, feels like a good place to start.
0: Yeah, I I love the idea of even just offsetting um, the the computers that run all the time.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, So during the day, I've reached the point where all day long I'm running off the solar power. I'm bringing in more solar power than I am using, which is a great spot to be because that means my home server, all my stuff is is, is being sustained by the sun. And I'd love to do a similar setup at, at the studio, a couple of panels on the roof. If I could just bring in, you know, 400 watts or so. I could probably cover most of my computer gear that's running 24-7. And, you know, I think about long-term, Alex, say even just 10 years, 15 years down the road, maybe the majority of cars or all cars sold will be electric. How does the grid in the United States at least handle that if we don't have some people offsetting their load with solar? It seems like long-term, the direction things are going between crypto mining and electric cars, there's going to be more demand on the grid than ever, so... Being able to supplement a little bit might not only just be a nice thing to do for the environment, but also ensure that you have enough power to go around. Free Bitcoin, baby. Yep. Get that crypto going and maybe, maybe spend your time learning. This episode is brought to you by the all new A Cloud Guru. They are the leader in learning for the cloud, Linux and other modern tech skills. Go check them out. They have hundreds of courses and thousands of hands-on labs. Get certified, get hired, get learning at acloudguru.com. You could spend that time mining crypto or you could spend that time learning job skills and getting hired. But, you know, I think maybe you and I are thinking about off-grid and backup power today because a lot of our listener services are down and offline as we record this right now. That's right. Yeah, OVH, one of the largest
1: VPS providers in Europe, have suffered a major fire this week and it's, it's taken, literally taken out one of their data centers and had dramatic effects on some of their other regions, data centers, whatever they called for OVH as well. It's it's just got me thinking, great, there's another disaster that I hadn't really thought about. What if AWS or DigitalOcean or Linode, what if they
0: catch fire? Oh, that's another one to plan for. <laughs> yeah, the thing that's tricky about OVH is data centers one through four, we're all kind of like in the same area So after midnight on the Wednesday of the week, we're recording this OVH cloud had an alarm go off. The cause as of this recording right now is still unknown. However, the founder and CEO speculated it may have been a UPS fire. And he noted in a video update that he released a couple of days ago that UPS number seven had been serviced earlier that day, but obviously more investigation is required in total. OVH had four data centers in this area um, and one data center, SPG2, was just totally destroyed by fire. And then part of SBG one was also damaged. And then SPG3 and 4, they're fine. But as we record, there's still some outages because there's some areas the staff can't get to. There's network issue. There's still some power issues. And there's there's even the fact that they still have to validate that the cooling system is is still fully functional. It's, like, bad, Alex.
1: This is a weird one to me because every data center that I've worked near or in, in some occasions, they've all had argon fire suppressant systems and just fire was something that you kind of assumed would never get out of control in a data center because it's a controlled environment. There isn't a huge amount of flammable stuff like on a data center floor <laughs> it's just metal boxes with some cables and stuff like that essentially yeah so it's it's kind of surprising to me that it was able to get to this level i mean if you look at some of the pictures and we've got a, a reuters article linked in the show notes that building was toast
0: yeah the ceo says something about it using older style construction techniques and that the newer buildings that weren't damaged were using the newer style i wonder if that style is fire suppression <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah, maybe <laughs> <laughs> or materials or something, but it kind of got us thinking like, yeah, you know, we got kind of a sad note in from listener Carrie. He said, My server was in data center one and I have lost it. I'm afraid I didn't have any complete backups because I didn't really have anywhere to back up to. That server already blew my personal self hosting budget. I feel like I've lost a loved one. I guess I'll get a box at home and I'll have to back up to that from now on, but that's going to get very expensive. That is tricky. Well, it is. It is
1: going to get expensive, but I would argue that the emotions you're feeling right now are also expensive. Just in a, you know, not dollars and cents necessarily, but they're expensive in a different way emotionally. And only you can quantify how much your data is worth. I mean, I don't know what was on this particular server for you, Kerry, but I certainly know in in the past when I've lost data, it hurts. Like, Genuinely, you spend the next few weeks, months, sometimes longer, wishing you'd done things differently, thinking, oh, if only I'd spent a couple of hundred on a pie and an external hard drive, and I wouldn't even be in this situation. I mean if you think about what most typical VPSs are, they are probably less than a hundred gig disc, probably only a few gigabytes of, of RAM or something like that. So we aren't talking about a huge amount of data to back up here. And what I would say is If you've got no backup, I mean, literally zero, don't try and aim for perfect. Just get a 128 gig USB stick off Amazon and then just get in the habit of of downloading your data once a month, once a year even. Because I'm sure right now you wish you'd had something, even if it was 11 months old, you'd have something.
0: Something I've seen really common is a lot of people these days when, when they have cheap cloud hosting, they're, they're going for like a nuck with a disk hanging off it or something that they're syncing to locally and getting that peace of mind by having the, the data on their local network. And I got to admit, it's kind of what I did for the Jupyter Broadcasting stuff is we have NextCloud up at Linode and then we have NextCloud installed on the server at the Jupyter Broadcasting Studio on the LAN. And we sync the stuff that I really care about. We don't sync everything because it's hundreds of gigs. But locally, we've st- we actually that's one. What, what, it will also archive. But we, so I should probably back up the studio server now. That I think about it. But we we back up the cloud locally to anything that's that's not ephemeral and anything that's not ephemeral we try to keep locally. And then my intention is to back that server up somewhere, Alex's house, Backblaze, I don't know what, but. I've got the cloud part covered. (laughs) I just don't necessarily have the local part fully covered right now. Because I ended up, and this is sort of where I connected with what Carrie was saying, is I just ended up with terabytes of data. Terabytes. And I don't know, I don't really know how to even get that off-site over the wire. It's so much data. Never underestimate, I think the saying goes, the
1: bandwidth of a truck driving down a highway full of hard drives.
0: Get it on a hard drive and mail it to me. That's the best way. What you're saying is I should pack up the RV and drive a hard drive down to your place. (laughs) That makes the most sense, right? You can if you want. (laughs) $3,000 backup trip. (laughs) Um, But, you know, so that's something we all struggle with. But you remember when we went and saw Wendell, uh, how he was implementing at his data center on his land, he was backing his up his place was nuts. Yeah, he was backing up his <laughs> client's cloud data for them to his to his servers just in case their cloud providers had issues. It's something you do kind of have to think about is when I'm building something, what is the risk to losing this? Like there's some some things I have on the cloud that if they were if they were if they were lost, it'd be inconvenient, but we could regenerate from source material.
1: Mm-hmm. Not everything. Yeah.
0: It is it is about evaluating the I don't want to say like
1: opportunity cost or whatever, but everything has a a cost. And, you know, photos, for example, are irreplaceable. You can't recreate those moments, videos, whatever. But, you know, a PDF with an invoice of some work you did 10 years ago, maybe that, okay, it might be nice to have it, but that's all just nice. But, you know, the the cost of, of a, a one-time backup off-site to a, a pen drive or something like that is so small compared to the amount, just the amount of time you're going to spend noodling after you've lost some data whilst you reconstruct what was actually on that file system and remember, oh, yeah, that was on that box as well. I lost that too.
0: And some of that stuff won't occur to you until years later. That's very true. And it feels so, you just feel like you've, Like somebody's cut a hole out of you sometimes. And I think that, especially when it comes to the pictures, I have opted to leave on for the iPhone members of my family our iCloud photo backup for everybody. I even end up paying for like some sort of family storage plan. So that way I knew because my mom's on there and, you know, my wife. And I just wanted to know that everybody's photos were backed up, even though I also back them up. My my phone, every picture I take goes
1: off to Nextcloud in 100% quality, but Google Photos also duplicates everything.
0: I, I, I'm off the Google Photos sauce because I'm using the iCloud photo, but it's like, you know, trading one, one service for the other.
1: <laughs> I mean, there are arguments to be made for Google's privacy policies versus Apple's, but uh, I'm not sure I fully trust either, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of gambling that Apple's are a little better and that they're not mining it for data, but... Now, make no mistake, bro. Apple are mining you for your cash. Right. No kidding. <laughs> no kidding. And we have talked about Google Photos alternatives, and it's not that uh, I, I'm not going to implement one of those. That's actually been my intention. But I still feel like I get some value out of just paying Apple to back that thing up because they are so valuable.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's really, photos are it. Like, pretty much everything else, I'm comfortable how I back it up. Although I know there's a couple of areas that I could probably do better. I mean, do you feel like there's an area where if you were to audit your backups right now, you'd look at it and go, oh, no, Alex, you, you got to fix it. Yeah, oh, yeah, I do. <laughs> so uh, the last couple of months have been a bit crazy
1: for me. My wife and I uh, had our first daughter and she spent she came a little bit early and she spent a couple of months in the hospital. So things have kind of been
0: decaying whilst I've been there. Congratulations, an official on-show congratulations. Yay! <laughs> yay da, da, da. i've known and, but this is the first time you said anything on the show so it's yeah, exciting
1: yeah i didn't want to go public until she was home just in case because anyway she's home she's healthy everything's good uh with the world so yeah i purchased the helios uh, as to be my on-site replication backup device right and then when everything went down in january and Ella was born I was in the middle of rebuilding my server at that point because that's when the whole GVTG thing started playing up and not working quite as I'd hoped. So, you know, I was at the hospital most of the day, but I'd come back here for two or three hours just to unwind and just mess around with hardware and stuff. And I never quite got to putting my backups back in place. And it's it's one of those things you think, oh, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. And then before you know it, a year later, you have a problem, you think, crap.
0: I never got to it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I do have plans, which we'll share with you soon, uh, to, as to what's going to replace the Helios in that situation. But uh, I, I'm tight-lipped for now, but we do, have a, we do have an upcoming segment on backups that will hopefully give you some ideas and inspiration. My Home Assistant box password shamed me this week. Did you get this? Yes, I did.
0: Did you get it for the SSH add-in? That's what I think I got it for. Uh, <laughs> mine was Node Red, I think. Oh, Node-RED, Alex, you're using a bad password with
1: Node-RED? Or maybe even Home Assistant itself? Yeah. I don't know, I've been a bit busy, I didn't
0: actually read it. I just saw saw the notification and dismissed it, I was like, oh, whatever, I'll get to you later. I dismissed it, and then mine came back. Mine is for the add-on core underscore SSH, which uses secrets, which have been detected as not secure. Probably a lot of people in the audience are getting this if they're on Home Assistant. It's a new feature, quote-unquote, that has been integrated. And- Frankly, probably a good one. Yeah, but the internet being the internet, people
1: are pissed. <laughs> I don't really get. Oh, this. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm just get, becoming a grumpy old man now. I'm a dad, and outrage culture is just. I don't know. I'm just tired of it. So there's a a link in the show notes to a post by Troy Hunt, who is an incredibly well-respected security researcher, and he is the guy that is behind the website Have I Been Pwned, and This website is incredible. You can tap in any password uh, into their database, and it'll tell you that, yes, this password is out in the wild. And as Troy puts it, if your password is in this list, I've seen it clear text, which means that the bad guys have seen it clear text. Right. So no matter your opinion on how secure you think it is, I guarantee it's out there in the wild somewhere, and somebody knows what it is. So don't use that password.
0: It's actually pretty clever for the Home Assistant developers to build this in. So the way it works is your passwords are hashed. The first five characters of that hash, so just the first five characters of a hash of your password, are then used to query the Have I Been Pwned website. It then returns a result of possible password hashes that match, and then Home Assistant checks that list against your hash locally. All of that validation is happening on your box. And what I found really interesting, and, and Troy goes
1: into full details in the article, he he basically goes through the Home Assistant forums thread where people are bitching and moaning and whining about this feature being turned on without their permission. To give you an idea of how, I don't want to say stupid, but honestly, when I was reading this Troy Hunt article, I was like, yeah, this thread is stupid. Um, someone was complaining it was sending out data over their metered connection. Right. He then proceeded to say... It's a few bytes. Like 36
0: kilobytes, you know? Yeah,
1: Yeah, we're, we're talking five times smaller than the average web
0: page load. If you notice that on a meter connection, then you've got problems. Right, it's, we're not really talking very much data. And it's probably, although we don't know for sure, only happening when you start up Home Assistant or reload the config. How do you feel about doing this on your,
1: your local LAN? I mean, I'm definitely guilty of reusing passwords on the internet. I'm certainly guilty of doing it on my LAN
0: that seems to be the crux of everyone's argument is my land my rules i have a safe trusted environment and i don't want to have to use p- good password hygiene i don't want long passwords that are unique and i i can definitely relate there there's sort of um when you do this for a living every now and then it's it's nice to be a little lazy like you know what's the saying about the uh, the guy who makes shoes his kids always have the worst shoes <laughs> Like, because you just get home, it's it's the last thing you want to do, right? It's just the last thing. Yeah. So there, I do understand that. However, this is where I fall down on it. The home assistant community is kind of a special case because they're playing around with IoT smart devices that are network connected. There's a higher threat level, a broader threat attack surface, if you will. And so I feel like you have to be a little more secure when you are willing to ride the IoT train, you know, because the the problem is any one of those individual devices one day could become compromised. And then that becomes a launching off point where they can go after other devices on your land. And we, we see it happen. And to that point, Troy actually makes this point in his article
1: that LinkedIn, I mean, we're talking a proper website here, had a data breach because one of their developers home networked had a weak SSH password, which allowed people to pivot through that developer's home network into LinkedIn servers and compromise LinkedIn that way.
0: Yeah, they brute forced his iMac. And so, you know,
1: I put myself in that developer's shoes and I think, well, holy crap, someone could pivot into Red Hat from here and I wouldn't I wouldn't want that. So I think to myself, okay, actually, Troy, you've probably got a point here. I do need to step up my game. And he uses 1Password. I think he's on the advisory board for 1Password. But we talked last episode about Bitwarden and I really cannot em- emphasize enough you know there are command line clients and stuff like that that you can use so you can put it in scripts and do all sorts of fun stuff if you want to and I, I think that's going to have to become a-, a 2021 rather late new year's resolution for me is to try and use that CLI stuff more
0: on my LAN at least. Yeah good passwords I think matter when we're kind of riding the cutting edge of technology even if You're not intentionally exposing your land to the internet. You never know when some crazy thing could happen. It's unlikely, but it could happen. But really, you also never know if one day somebody's going to rock up onto your Wi-Fi or something. Or somebody joins your land that you put on intentionally, but they have some misconfiguration or infection. So it's kind of like multiple layers of protecting yourself is the best kind of protection. And I think when you look at logins, you could look at maybe not only unique passwords, but when possible, also using keys to do SSH sign-ins. So that way you have to have maybe a key and a password. And that just takes it a little bit step further. Like that LinkedIn developer, if he had had a decent password or password and a key, then the attackers would have never gotten onto his iMac and then never gotten into LinkedIn. And when the whole COVID lockdown thing started and we had a lot more people all of a sudden working from home, that was one of my first concerns is, well, now all of these corporations are as insecure as people's home networks are. And you never know when that could be an issue as well. I just think as much of a pain in the arse as it is, there's enough tools and we know enough information now that it's worth doing. The only thing I would have changed with how Home Assistant has implemented this is give me an option to turn it off for a bit. (laughs) You know, I'm not fixing it while I'm out here in the woods. (laughs) Silence that checkbox for
1: seven days or something, you know. Or until next update even, you know. That could work too. I do believe they're actually working on uh, uh, making it opt-in or opt-out now. Uh, so for what it's worth, the outrage has, has had some effect on, on the feature. But I mean, I think it's great. I think anything that we can do, and here's another point about the Home Assistant community being a special case as well, is a lot of people are coming to servers for the first time because of home assistant they're they're running a box in their house for the first time that's got ssh listening on something maybe for the first time ever and anything that home assistant can do for those kind of newer users that aren't you know enterprise grade buffoons like me that just reminds them that hold on you know if you're exposing your house to the internet through Neb- nebuchadnessar through WireGuard, through whatever it might be, there is some risk. And then when you couple that up with some leaky washing machine that's running an old firmware from eight years ago, there are risks to these things. And I, I for one,
0: applaud the Home Assistant Project for
1: having the stones to put this
0: in. Yeah, and it, it definitely, I think, will improve the community security overall, which is a good thing for them. And as they make this a commercial product one day, because, you know, this has got to be the direction this thing's going when they try to make it a consumer product and not just a, you know, a more advanced prosumer or enthusiast product. Nerd product. Go on, you should say it. Nerd product. It's a nerd product right now. But one day, maybe one day they're going to try to sell it to average Joes who have bought all these smart devices and now they just need something to make it all work together. And, you know, buy the $100 home assistant appliance. And you need these kind of things built in. And they just recently had a run-in with add-ons that were leaking information. So I could see why this is an area they're investing into. And I say good on them, um, and I think it'll be a smooth transition. There is also something worth looking into is they're working with k Anonymy, which is a Cloudflare-hosted service. So Cloudflare is kind of proxying some of these requests to anonymize them. That's also made some people uncomfortable in all of this. But I did a read-through of the setup, and it actually, it seems like they've done a really, really solid job here. So we'll have a link in the show notes at selfhosted.show slash 40 for the Cloudflare information on that. If that has also perhaps gotten the hairs on the back of your neck up a little bit, it's worth reading about. We'll have information.
1: I'm super curious to hear what, what you all do for your local LAN password situations. Do you use a password manager? Are you like me and reuse the same password on every box? let us know, self-hosted.show slash contact. Listener Chris writes in, I run a number of services from my home server that are internet-facing. I understand that the smart best practice is to minimise that as much as possible, but some of these things I want to access whilst I'm away from the house. Some of them are also used by family members, and so it's unavoidable on some levels. My question is this, how do I know if a service is hardened enough to, to raw dog it out on the open internet? Wow. <laughs>
0: We're just going to, let's let that sit for a second. <laughs> how do you know? How do you know if you can rod dog it? Yeah. I mean, I feel this one, you know, Plex is one, you know, Plex you kind of feel safe about, but how do you know about some of the lesser used ones like subsonic or something,
1: right? I think it's safe to assume that everything is porous. Mm.
0: Everything. Yeah. I hate though that the answer always is put it behind a VPN.
1: Why? I mean, with, with WireGuard these days, it's really the, the barrier to entry as long as you don't screw
0: up your subnets like i did <laughs> the barrier is pretty low but you have friends and family that are using your plex server without connecting to wireguard you know like plex is such a great example or jellyfin because you you do often want to share with others that's true uh, and i could see that i could see that being true with others as well uh nextcloud he mentions in here but uh baby buddy i'm not so sure about that you know that starts to get a little more niche Uh, And I I hate to be the guy that just says, well, if it's big, you can use it publicly. And if it's small, you should hide it. But that's kind of a, a general rule of thumb that I follow. You know, you try to figure how many eyes have been on it.
1: You know, another angle to consider is security
0: by obscurity.
1: Now, if you think that, you know, you just have a random URL that you're using to access this service and you've put it behind a reverse proxy, and probably these days you're using Let's Encrypt to generate a certificate for it so that you know that things are secure... Well, I've got bad news for you, I'm afraid. If you go to crt.sh and type in your domain name, you'll see every single certificate that's ever been issued by Let's Encrypt for your domain name. And so you think to yourself, okay, well now my super secret string that I came up with to hide this service is now out in the public domain. So really, it's not secret at all one thing you could do to kind of work around that is use a wildcard certificate. That would kind of sort of help because it wouldn't, you know, uh, publish the actual string, but it, it just goes to show to me that, you know, security through obscurity is really not, it's, it's an illusion.
0: Yeah. And I was going to suggest throwing it out on like a, a VPS, like Linode and uh, run your, your software there for a bit on the public internet and monitor the logs. But you could run something for six months and nobody nibbles at it, and then on you know day one of seven months somebody nibbles on it. It's tricky that way, and so it really the only way to have full peace of mind, and that's what I've opted to do here in Lady Jupes, is just to have absolutely zero outside inbound. It's the only it's the only way I've I've found to be completely uh, comfortable with it. I don't necessarily always follow that rule myself because. Some services like mail servers, web servers, media streaming servers, they have to be public by their very nature. So you have to hope that those just have more eyes and that they get a little more attention and that they've been a little more audited. But remember, logging is your friend. So if you ever suspect something's weird weird is happening, go check your log. See if you have weird logins. See if you have somebody hitting your website all the time. Use Datadog. Yeah. Yeah. Use something that will you go through there and alert you. That absolutely could be a good way to go. It's a good question, though, listener, Chris, uh, because I'm sure it's one that people struggle with. So let us know what you out there would do. Self-hosted.show slash contact. Now, um, we have Joseph who writes in. He says, I have a bunch of those Tekken smart switches flashed with Tasmodo, and they work great. I have a need for smart switches to replace my wall switches, though. You know, for example, like my kids' closet lights, which are always left on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would also love to replace the controllers on our ceiling fans with smart devices, something that would toggle the light on and off and also set the fan to high, medium or low, or even off completely. My preference would be for something I can self-host, non-cloud connected, open source software. Are there any devices which would actually fill this need or similar to the way the tech and smart plugs do? What are your thoughts? Well, this is an easy question. The Shelly
1: devices are exactly what you're looking for. And I think we've talked about them on a previous episode. But just to recap, they're about the size of an Oreo cookie and they go inside the light box behind the switch. So you don't change the switch itself, but this, um, this little cookie-sized box has a relay inside it. You need to do a little bit of wiring, so, you know, mains voltage, be careful, or get an electrician if you're not comfortable. They make a few products, so they make a 2.5, which will let you do up to two switches in the same box. Uh, They make uh, a single unit as well, and they make a bunch of other stuff that does like rolling shutters for uh, garage doors and all sorts of stuff. So go to shelly.cloud and check out their stuff if you're interested, but it's exactly what you're looking for. And you can put TASMotor on them. So Mahendra writes in, in the latest episode, you suggest file run for a simple file browser. I wanted to suggest another minimalist alternative. It's very light with no database required, github.com slash filebrowser slash filebrowser. Got that rolls off the
0: tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> it's very simple, easy to remember. Yeah, it is just a web-based file browser that sits on top of a directory. Each user gets their own directory, um, and it's just a standalone app. Pretty simple. I like it. Even easier than the one we had talked about before. Uh, so I'm going to think I'm going to grab this and try it out. It is nice. Yeah, I tried it out before
1: the show, and... I kind of wish I hadn't bothered with file run now. This is, I think, my new uh, standard kind of throw it up and forget about it remote access software. So, yeah, great job. Thanks for writing in, Mahendra. Now, I've mentioned Chowdown a couple of times on the show before as a self-hosted recipe app. I still use it. I still love it. It stores all of my recipes in clear text files on disk. But there are some alternatives, and uh, we've had a couple of listeners write in, and one of them is called
0: Tandoor Recipes. What
1: do you think of this one, Chris?
0: It looks really good. This, if anything, would probably get me to start doing something like this, because it has a planning aspect, which is useful for a guy like me. I can do a little meal planning, uh, but also has a sharing feature, and it's all on a progressive web app, which means my wife and I could share it like on our phones, which I think would be really nice. And then... The other thing I would need is, and it does support impo- importing from Chowdown, is import. And it has Chowdown import as well as Nextcloud cookbook import, uh, Mealy, Paprika, Saffron, and a couple of others it can import from. So I-, I think it's it's easy to try out. Now, we have
1: mentioned this one previously because uh, it, it goes by the name Vabeen1111 slash recipes on GitHub. That's the, the repo it's in. Uh, I think the Tandoor name must be new. Uh, I don't know how old exactly it is.
0: Yeah, they are it is an it is a new release too. So that might be maybe they did a name change.
1: But they are using MK docs for their documentation.
0: So I've got to give them a plus point for that. Yeah, it says here that they're happy to announce they've released a new version which gives the application its well-deserved name and logo, Tandoor Recipes. So there you go. It runs
1: out of a Docker container. It will also run on Unraid, Synology, Kubernetes. You can do it manually as well if you want to. Uh, There's a bunch of interesting stuff about syncing and storage in their documentation. So it's going to take a lot for me to throw away Chowdown because I, I do genuinely really like it. And I've modified the CSS, so I've got some fuzzy search. You know how I love my fuzzy search. Oh, that's cool. You know, I've customized Chowdown for my own needs, but then maybe the grass is greener. Maybe I should try this one out.
0: I mean, it does have the import functionality.
1: Downside, though, is it needs a Postgres database. And I've already got, like, it feels like a dozen different database containers running. Do I need
0: another one? That is a constant internal battle. And sometimes I'm just down to, ah, who cares? Just run a whole bunch. You've got the resources. And other times, like the sysadmi, sysadmin in me is just not having it. <laughs> it's just You can't run three copies of Postgres. That doesn't make any sense. They're different versions. They have different security issues, different features. What are you doing? <laughs> and it's a recipes
1: app at the end of the day. Like
0: Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like,
1: just, just having the files in clear text on disk feels more future-proof to me. So if, if this person loses interest in maintaining uh, th- this particular app for whatever reason, I'm not up the creek without a paddle, so to speak. That, I think, is
0: a great feature of Chowdown. Uh, that kind of clear text back end gives me peace of mind. That's just a peace of mind for that kind of stuff.
1: And if Chowdown stops working for some reason, I can just pull it up in any text editor and it's still readable.
0: Yeah, it's almost as good as writing them
1: down on an index card. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you laugh at that, but I'm pretty sure if I asked my mum to go and find me a a recipe for something, she would find it in less time than it takes me to fix. Oh, chowdown's not working? Okay, well, let me just SSH in and (laughs) do this, do that, do the other. And before you know it, 10 minutes later, you've forgotten that you're actually looking for a recipe, and then you go and order pizza instead, so... (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, she's got the index card ready to go. It's very true. There's something to that. Mm-hmm. A reminder you can find our sponsor, Cloud Guru, on social media. They're just slash a Cloud Guru. It's really easy, like on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, p- pretty much all the social media platforms. Just slash a Cloud Guru. Also, our members. Thank you to our members. Self hosted.show slash SRE. You support the show. You become our site reliability engineers. You get a limited ad feed and extra content. The post show. Self-hosted.show slash SRE if you'd like to support the show and become a member. My wife's Cam 3 came in this week, so we're going to have a little
1: chat about that today.
0: Yes, that's going to be the post show. I ordered a few of them, so I got thoughts. Of course you did.
1: <laughs> so you can go to self-hosted.show slash contact, and that's the place to go to get in touch with us. You can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger.
0: Oh, I'm there as well, at Chris Elias, and the show is at self-hosted show. On
1: Discord, I'm at AlexKTZ. So thanks very much for listening, everybody. That was self-hosted.show slash 40.
0: So I got three WiseCam 3s. You know, I got the one early on, like with the pre-order, and then I, I had to wait like two months or three, however, it was six months, I don't know, until they opened up the regular orders, and then I got three more, so I have a total of four WiseCam 3s now. Did it arrive before your Atari VCS, though? Yes. The VCS is not arrived yet. I don't know what's going on with that. Why is it still winning? <laughs> why am I? Why do I still not have my VCS? That's weird. That's that's getting weird. But yeah, the the wise they are a very solid upgrade from the older ones, but with one major limitation right now. Womp womp. There's no RTSP firmware yet. Nope. They say they're working on it. They say it on their support documentation. <sighs> but man, does that make them a lot less useful for me? You know. Yeah, I can't
1: do anything with them. I mean, I I could, like a caveman, just use their app and then sign up to their Cloud Plus, Cam Plus thing that they keep spamming me about.
0: And obviously, that's what they want me to do. Yeah, they've worked hard on that service, too. They're pushing it. They've they've invested a lot. They really want everybody to sign up.
1: Why won't they think about what I want, which is an (laughs) RTSP stream? I know, right? for those wondering the reason that we're you know interested in RTSP stream is it means we can take the feed from that camera and not have to use the proprietary app and stream it into any network media player or NVR software network video recorder software such as Blue Iris which I know I mention every single episode but it is great Blue Iris is great and uh, it will just read the RTSP uh, stream and just it
0: just works and it's the reason I want it specifically on the Wyze Cam 3 is the optics are better. The viewing angle is better. So, I mean, I, I would like to, and for a $25 camera, I don't mind replacing them every couple of years, you know, and just going through and doing a swap, a straight swap. But the main reason I think it'd be great to have RTSP on these things is they have faster CPUs. And so they can they can stream better. They have they have a better shot at being a solid little live streamer and that's why i want one and they have this kind of upgraded
1: starlight sensor that they talk about as well huh
0: yeah i haven't played with that as much because um i don't have any of them outside but supposedly they're better outside as well it's just not really the camera i want to use for that they're quite a bit bigger than the original one yes it is a bit bigger
1: um but they are waterproof which is a nice thing so they they tout that these particular v3s they kind of make the wise cam outdoor obsolete which is nice
0: and remember, we're talking, these are pretty, you can turn on if you want to pay for their very reasonable uh, cloud service. You can get person detection, face detection, uh, but additionally, you still get local SD card, continuous recording, and um, you can generate motion events. You can have a CO2 alarm and smoke detector alarm events that get detected and push notifications sent to your phone. I mean, they're pretty clever little $25 cameras, really. <laughs> it's, it's really impressive what they've what they've pulled off. Um, and the margins have got to be tight, which is probably another reason why they're pushing that subscription service so much. So, I mean, the subscription service is $1.25 a month if you
1: buy an annual pass, which is about $15 by my rough napkin calculations.
0: And they let us early back or set our own price. So mine's like, Mine's ridiculous. Mine's like $2 a month if I wanted to.
1: I just ignored those emails. Man, I feel stupid now.
0: I was tempted to use it. I I went in and secured the pricing, but I actually haven't turned it on on any of my cameras. You know, because I got them in my house. I don't know. It's weird. $15 a year
1: on a $25 camera. That's quite a lot though, isn't it? Like percentage wise.
0: I guess where's the value? Is the value in the person detection? Right? Maybe the service is the value. Compared to a Nest camera though. What, the Nest charge? Nest is pretty expensive, and Ring is fairly expensive as well. The the Ring Protect plan is actually pretty expensive because all of these are dealing with large data files, storage, processing. It's, as a service, it's actually probably a decent amount of overhead. And I think Wise's approach is to sell you on the service, and then the camera just becomes a commodity that enables the service. So a $25 camera, like I said, I'd replace that every two years And every two years, I'll get significant optics upgrades. The Nest Aware
1: costs $6 a month for 30 days of event video history. In the cloud only, there's no local storage. And if you want 60 days of event history plus 24-7 video history for 10 days, that's $120 a year per camera. And they already cost $200 each.
0: I mean, it's good. I've tried it. You know, I just tried it for a little bit. Have you ever used the Nest software?
1: It's not bad. Yeah, actually, when I moved into the the house when I emigrated, I had a couple of Nest cams from London, so I just reused those.
0: Yeah, I got I was gifted one for Christmas a few years ago, and decided to set it up for a bit. And it can detect dogs and barking. It knows the difference between a you know a loud slam and barking, and people detection. It can even learn people if you want it to. I mean, it can it, it's whole thing. But for me, it's too much. It's too dependent. It's Always streaming. That's the other thing about the Nest camera. Is the Nest camera is always streaming back to the Nest services, where the Wise cameras, if you opt to use their cloud service, only stream when an event has been triggered. So it uses significantly less bandwidth. Um, And so one of the things I like about that is I have a Wise camera now, a version three, pointed out my windshield as a dash cam. So I'm using it as a dash cam, but I can also, when I do leave, I could turn on the person detection. And get an extra layer of monitoring around my RV. So I I am contemplating, since that camera faces outward, I am contemplating trying the, uh, the Y services on that one.